Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of SF Crossing the Gulf. I'm Karen Burnham. And I'm Karen Lord. And today we are recording a sort of supplementary podcast. Uh, we finished up our last half season with a discussion of C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces. It was the last novel that he wrote, um, it, and I believe it was 1954. Um, Karen and I had fairly divergent readings of it, and we agreed at the end of that podcast that what we would really like is a little bit more of a scholarly perspective on how this book has been read and received over the years. And it just so happens that uh, my sister-in-law, Beth Potterveld, Beth, would you say hi? Hello. Um, has long has often been a volunteer at the Wade Center, which is a center of Inklings scholarship, which includes both C.S. Lewis and Tolkien in um, uh, Wheaton, Illinois. Yes. And Beth, could you tell us a little bit about what you what you've done there? There, I've been helping with their um, academic journal they put out called Seven, with the seven Wade authors, including Lewis and Tolkien. And um, I, at Wheaton College, uh, very closely affiliated with the Wade Center, um, took a few classes with some eminent Lewis scholars that happen to work at Wheaton College, <laughs> uh, and called the class is called Christianity and Fantasy, and one of the books that we read there was uh, Tilia Faces. So through those connections, I, I think I have a, a few salient points to, <laughs> to And to And again, session. certainly uh, much fresher and much more rigorous information than either Karen or I had at the time of the last recording. So, so Beth, you've, you've uh, brought a couple of books along, um, and actually I should say that it, it just so happens that Beth and I managed to find ourselves actually in the same place at the same time, so that we're recording together. Um, we're uh, in St. Louis, even though I'm usually based in Houston and Beth is usually based in Chicago, so this is just one of those lovely happenstance sort of things. But could you tell us a little bit about the books that you have? I have... Reason and Imagination, C.S. Lewis, A Study of Tilia Faces, by Peter J. Shekel. And in this, he goes first through the book itself and then through C.S. Lewis's life and writings, looking at the dichotomy and, and then eventually a fusing of seeing faith with both a lens of reason and the lens of imagination and how those are really brought together best in Till We Have Faces as his final novel. And I also have Bare Face, A Guide to C.S. Lewis's Last Novel by Doris Myers. I think I'm saying that correctly. And I haven't looked at this one a whole lot, but it has more topical uh, essays on some of the subjects that are interesting in relation to uh, Lewis, including um, psychology and uh, classical studies. And so I know, Karen, uh, check me if I'm wrong, but, but you and I both found ourselves a little bit in over our heads when we were reading part two of the novel. Absolutely. It was, it was um, a bit of a challenge to interpret exactly what was going on. It was heavier symbolism. But I was conscious that I was not convinced I was reading the symbols through the with the correct lexicon, perhaps. <laughs> and um, and yeah, so that was a challenge for me, and it was one of the first things that we we asked Beth. Well, no, it was one of the second things we asked Beth about, but it was very much in the forefront. 
And so, Beth, could you give us a little bit of the rundown of, of, what, of what you found out about that, that sort of second part? And, and for uh, those who haven't necessarily listened to our first podcast, the second part of Till We Have Faces is basically um, has a lot to do with Oral's um, dreams and visions, uh, you know, after in, in her you know, very old age. Right. So the second part is definitely the the harder uh, of the two, I would say, as well. Totally threw me off the first time reading it, too. Um, But what I saw seeing uh, reading through Shekel's work is he very much sees it as a uh, overall finally going into her her self self examination to uh, understand that finally seeing that she is get this uh, grasping, needy, vampiric, sucking the life out of everything she loves kind of person. Now, when it comes to that Unget symbolism, so she she has this realization after seeing... Um, she describes the, the ritual of spring in, mm-hmm. in the Church of Unget, and then she has a vision and realizes that she is Unget. And then... Wait, is that the one where she is digging down into the underworld? Yes. Yeah, her father comes and says, hands her a shovel and says, dig. Yes. And the fact that it's her father that guides her through that part is also kind of interesting, because her father was such a negative figure um, throughout the whole book. And the different guides she has uh, seem to have something to say about her psychology at that point as well, coming to to realizations. Uh, I thought when I when the when the fox turns up, uh, the fox and her father seem to be almost um, opposing sides of her mind in, in the sense of how she accepts and sees herself. Because the, the fox is one who loves her, but is also a father figure, and her her actual father who hates her still manages to tell some some very harsh truths about her in a way. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very interesting how how the how the two are are sort of placed side by side. Um, but, but there again, you see, at first I was reading that, that bit where her father is there and the fox is there and, and you know, she sees all these various people um, who passed on. Um, I, was, I was seeing that as being as real as in part one, where uh, she did in fact almost encounter the god and she, and she heard, you know, this, the, the, the kind of the dramatic um, destruction of things after um, Psyche tried to see um, God's face and everything was was wiped out and she witnessed and heard that I I was thinking to myself okay we're in a a universe kind of like a Pratchett universe where the gods do exist so now this part two bit where she's confronting the gods and reading out her her, um, complaint against them this also is real but we then discover according to the scholars, and not necessarily. It's actually her digging into her own psyche, her own self, her own self, and finding out um, what the truth is about herself. Yeah, I, I would say it's it's definitely a, a internal journey journey in the second half, uh, mm-hmm. second part. It's actually much shorter than the yeah, first part. Yeah. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and but, that's what threw me off. That's what I meant when I said I was reading the symbols with the wrong mm-hmm. lexicon, because I was trying to see it in terms of the particular the peculiar theology of that universe, when in fact I should have been reading it from a psychological point of view, and in fact a Jungian psychological point of view. Right. It, 
definitely is more psychological than physical, uh, but I wouldn't put that to say it's like just all in Oral's head, um, because there are definitely things that she sees there in the visions in part two that she has absolutely no way of knowing, even if she dug down deep into her own consciousness. Wait, she she right. wouldn't know these things right. deep down in herself uh, okay, about what 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 psyche has been doing all this time, um, and right. how Oral's journeys have helped lessen the grief in Psyche's wanderings, for instance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I would say there is a a divine element in sending all these dreams and visions, Mm -hmm. Um, but it it is definitely more psychological. But for me, that, that really makes a difference because instead of reading the fox as the real shade of the fox he instead becomes something of a manifestation of Oral's own psychology at that point. And that actually makes me a little more comfortable with reading what the fox says in that section, because I had had a tendency reading that section to find that the fox's sort of mea culpa um, undermined some things I respected about the character earlier on. But once I read it in the context of Oral's interrogation of herself that that makes me that that reading makes is um yeah it's more comfortable for me (laughs) i would i would kind of push back against that i i think that not exactly sure where that line would be um between how much it is or all thinking this is what the fox would say or it actually being a projection of the now dead fox um, but I think you uh, were, were told in the book later on in his own life, he began to be more into poetry and the yeah, definitely. things like that, that he had, had poo-pooed a, a bit uh, earlier on in life. And so I think some of his philosophies might have been mitigated later on in life, so, and that would then be what we're seeing in, the, in part two. Actually, tell us about the, um, you mentioned at one stage, uh, possibly outside the podcast, but you mentioned stoicism as being the, the kind of the, 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 the discipline or the, the philosophy that the fox is representing. So, so you're basically saying that um, he started off very much in that mold, but he sort of mellowed a bit over time. Right, yeah. So you, could you give us sort of the, the elevator version of, of Stoicism? <laughs> so, Stoic- <laughs> so Stoicism, uh, like in Meyer's book, uh, was uh, first founded by Zeno in uh, about 300 BC and continued in popularity into uh, the Christian era, about the 200s at, at least. And... Um, so by that time, it was so very popular. People were writing and calling themselves Stoics, and but being absolutely opposite of <laughs> writings of other people that call themselves Stoics as well. So it's it's a bit difficult for us to figure out exactly what Stoics believed. Um, but it would seem that, um, unlike Plato, they believe that the physical material world that we saw was everything in its essence. Uh, not a shade of 
the good, the the best that Plato understood. And um, it believed in uh, that there's a divine nature that governed everything. This was the same thing as fate. It was the same thing as reason, same thing as Zeus. You could call it that if you really wanted to. Um, but it was a very impersonal god uh, that mm-hmm. did not require any sacrifices okay, so, or anything. So, so it, um, in a sense, it rationalized the gods. Yes, yes. Um, mm-hmm. And you're just supposed to live in, in harmony with nature. Anything that was bad that happened was because other people weren't living according to nature or it would all work itself out in the end somehow. (laughs) And and so this is why the fox um, tells Oral not to be afraid when uh, she hears Psyche being born, all the pain of childbirth, because it's a natural thing. It's okay. This is why he tries to be very okay with Psyche dying. Right, right. but Literally you, stoic, yes. Yes, <laughs> yes yeah, that, that's yeah. very well, that, good. At... That, makes, that makes a lot of sense. And of course, as, as, um, as we, we were discussing, the fox then becomes the representation for reason. Yes, on the reason and, um, and imagination. The priest right? of yes. Unget is actually, who does appear not only as a, a real character in the first part, but also as uh, a shade um, and, and a reference point. Um, not as a shade, sorry, as, as somebody mentioned while Oral is having her dream about digging down deep and confronting the gods and so forth. Um, he's a representation of imagination. And in the first part, Psyche says that she, she, having been taught by the fox and also experiencing this kind of epiphany um, to do with Ungit and the brute, felt that there had to be a merging between um, the fox's teachings and, and the priest's approach which was then what you said when he said that there was a melding between reason and imagination. Right. This was uh, very key to Lewis's uh, ideas on, um, on religion. Uh, in an essay he wrote in Christian, called The Christian Apologetics, it's now published in a collection called God in the Dock, he talks about religions as soups and classifies them between thick and clear soups. And the thick is the imagination side. It's the, the pagan religions of blood and sacrifice. And um, the clear is the um, reasonable side uh, of stoicism or uh, just ethical Christianity and it's very philosophical and um, ethereal and uh, it was his position that you really needed to have a melding of these two to have the true religion right and he uses very similar language to that in in till we have faces where he mm-hmm. talks about uh, the priest accuses Fox's stoicism or, mm-hmm. or you know rationality is as being thin and clear as water. That's water, yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, interesting, interesting uh, visual there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Huh. Hmm. So it's it's kind of funny because I think that one of the terms I'm 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 actually wondering if I did actually use this term in a podcast, but I think that when it came to it, the term imagination, I used the term myth or I thought the term myth when I was thinking that um, Lewis was seeing the whole Ungit cult and, and the whole, that whole approach as, as being 
um, myth in the same way that he was very much... Well, you mentioned his classical studies, for example, and mm -hmm. I, I do know that for a very long part of his life, he was very much immersed in, in the Greek myth and, and, and very sort of entranced by it. And that's why it completely shows up through all of Narnia. Yes. Oh, um, actually, so. that, Karen, that reminds me, because, um, Beth, I think you, you mentioned that uh, you learned that Lewis had taken a stab at writing this story much earlier in his life. Uh, yes. Yes. yes he, this this story in particular always always fascinated him because he, he felt that the original uh, Roman author just didn't take it far enough. He really disliked the, the thought that the sisters could actually see the house. <laughs> and it, it just wasn't mythical enough, wasn't numinous enough, was his word um, for it. And so... In his 20s, we have diary entries about him writing a poem for this. We have a few couplets and maybe even a play. Those really never took off. And this was in his uh, when he was an atheist himself, so it really would have been interesting to see his treatment of, of this story with, with his uh, atheist viewpoint. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah, it is a very powerful story. You can, you know, and he, he brings a lot out of it. But I'm sorry, Karen, I had kind of interrupted your train of thought there. No, um, um, I think that you, you actually brought it to right where I wanted to take it to, which is to say that um, imagination and myth for Lewis are very much tied up together. And, um, and you can see his fascination with it throughout his life as, mm -hmm. you know, evidenced by his fascination with this particular myth as well. But um, I like, I do like the fact that he made it so that there was some doubt about whether the palace could be seen, because to me that's what changes it from a uh, a myth that can be expressed in, in two pages to a book that can be explored. That's where you can really delve into the psychology of someone, where you know you you have just enough doubt to be able to muddy your own motivations for mm -hmm. certain actions. Right. When I was uh, reading Tulia Faces for the, the class at Wheaton that I took, uh, I was finally catching on to, to some things as uh, as they came in the book, but I I felt Lewis, as a, as a Christian author, we were supposed to know, know that Orwell was supposed to trust that the palace was there, that the god was real, that that Orwald's doubt was wrong. I, I felt that was how we were supposed to go, but she only did just see it for a glimpse, and and I and and the the teacher brought up all all these examples of like, she always second guesses herself. There always seems to be a divine voice perhaps in her head say, saying well, she's happy doesn't right. doesn't the don't the gods deserve someone as wonderful as psyche for their own uh, but the normal always had such great answers <laughs> to, to, in response to the to those doubts and i i i was really on orwell's side at that time <laughs> reading it um but i think the the turning point for me now this this next time this most recent time reading the book was when she first came up into the mountains to um do whatever funeral rites she could for psyche 
and she first saw the valley of of the gods and it's this lush beautiful place and um she gets this almost undeniable feeling of joy and asks why should our hearts not dance which mm-hmm. is something that psyche says later on uh perhaps so i think it's really good hint that this is what she should have been thinking and she fights and fights and fights against that feeling and i think yeah, if she, she actually say i had to consciously remind myself to be sad yes it's like i'm here <laughs> on a sad duty i must be sad yes <laughs> And I think it's because she had fought against that divine glimpse of joy so hard right then. I think I think that's why she couldn't see the palace. She had utterly cut herself off from that divine aspect of the world already. I don't want to make it sound as if it's exactly the same scenario, but I am reminded of in The Magician's Nephew when Uncle yes. Andrew first comes to Narnia mm-hmm. and he hears the animals talking and he's like, no, 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 animals can't talk. Of course they can't talk. And then he just sort of, you know, adjusts his, his, his mind a bit and adjusts his, his oral input until suddenly he starts to hear snarls and, and squeaks and, and the usual noises he would expect. Exactly. Um, and, and can't hear anything anymore. And mm-hmm. then he's like, oh, yes, you know, I was, I was just a bit under stress. You know, I, that, was, that was a hallucination initially. But now this is the way it's supposed to be. Right. So, um, so yeah, there is there is that, that idea that yeah. Yeah, I, we influence our perceptions more than, than we realize, at least for, for the purpose of narrative and story and this sort of thing. Indeed. Yeah, I, I knew of uh, Uncle Andrew's uh, eventually just convincing himself that the lion was just roaring. It is, there's no way lions can sing. <laughs> Um, and I, I knew he had to go through that cognitive process. And so what really was tripping me up is that Orwell never went through that cognitive process. She just didn't see the palace. But I think that that glimpse of the valley uh, before was when that process began. Right. And and again, you see the, um, you know, you, you can put the fox and Bardia on a kind of spectrum that Oral is so far into her own psychology that she's off that spectrum entirely because Bardia says, look, it's the God's business. I'm not even going to mess with that. And the fox says, well, look, you know, she's probably with a huntsman and, and that's not good, but she seems to be happy. She seems to be healthy. Let's leave her alone. The fox and the Bardia arguing from completely different worldviews come to the same conclusion. Mm-hmm. And Oral's just totally off in her own obsessive, um, you know, her set obsessive, quote-unquote love mm-hmm. for Psyche. And so, you know, it really does show that, that what Oral's going through is, is um, you know, completely separate from that axis. But you see here again, I appreciate the twist that Lewis did because the original myth has the sisters being jealous of the palace and the husband and, and all, this, all the beautiful things that their sister now has that they don't. Mm-hmm. But um, he changed it and made it, it was still jealousy. Mm-hmm. But it takes you a while mm-hmm. to realize that because you think, oh, you know, she's just so much in love with her sister. She's not at all like like the evil stepsister of myth. And then you realize, wait a minute, there's there's a jealousy that's all wrapped up in this so-called love of hers, mm-hmm. and and that's that's how it's being framed. Right. Um, it's it's you know, the she jealousy. Doesn't, she doesn't care about the palace and the husband, but she cares. She cares that psyche should belong to her alone. Right. That psyche could love or be happy with anyone other than herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, I love that, that, that the root motivation is still jealousy. Yeah. 
it's just a completely different kind of jealousy than the the sort of banal, petty, you have nice things that I don't kind of thing from the original. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I wonder if that element of this, if we're left, love to imagine that that element of the story that the sisters are jealous of all of Psyche's beautiful things was introduced when Psyche's religion became a cult, just to (laughs) make it a little bit easier for people to understand. Right, right. People can identify more easily with, I want that stuff, (laughs) more than I want to possess that person and all that she loves. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Okay, so was, were there any other topics that we wanted to hit, Karen? I, the only thing is that we haven't really mentioned much of um, one or two of Lewis's other works that hmm. have some, some similar imagery in a way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we, there is a book called The Great Divorce, which actually portrays heaven and hell, and is, is slightly Dante-esque in that. Um, Lewis has chosen for his Virgil his favorite author, George MacDonald, <laughs> which I thought was rather cool. <laughs> but um, the, the interesting thing about heaven and, the heaven and hell and the great divorce is that people from hell sort of come to visit heaven and are, are, are try to, they try to persuade them that they'd really like it there, they'd really want to stay, but they always want to go back to hell, which is sort of a, a very drab and boring kind of suburb. <laughs> um, and and in, in that story, he has um, depictions of obsessive love, um, which are very similar to what we then see in Till We Have Faces, where there are people who are convinced that, you know, you know, I've, I've done so much for you, you know, I've loved you so much, and this is how you treat me. And, mm-hmm. and, you, and you hear you hear the particular the, um, the, the particular song of these people, and you're like, hang on, this is, this is all very familiar. It's this idea of um, they're taking this possessiveness, this, this, uh, this attachment, and, and they're and they're and they're calling it love, but but it's not allowing the other person to be happy um, in, in in what they what they have found for themselves because it doesn't involve them, you know, because it doesn't involve them, they can't really be happy. So that that was one thing I wanted to mention. I did I did kind of um, like the parallels there, and it does sound to me as if in a way um, this book was the book he was writing for his entire life, and that's why you can see like, glimmers of it. In some of his other works, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about um, Lewis's uh, why why he might have picked George MacDonald? I mean, because I I've, I've enjoyed um, some of George MacDonald stuff and not enjoyed some of George MacDonald's <laughs> other stuff. <laughs> I know that there's uh, a I forget where Lewis writes it, but he describes reading George MacDonald for the first time. I can't even recall exactly what it is of his that he's reading, um, but he calls uh, reading George MacDonald uh, the baptizing of his imagination. Uh, he, nice. Uh, he, he's not even uh, back to being a Christian yet, but uh, George MacDonald is, is helping him get there. And um, I know he references uh, the Curdy books and mm-hmm. some of in uh, the ah, space yes, trilogy, the Curdy, the Princess and the Goblin, yeah. And um, and by the way, if anybody out there hasn't read *The Princess and the Goblin*, shame on you! And you can get it on Project Gutenberg. <laughs> <laughs> and you should also check out at the back of *The North Wind*. Oh right, I yes. need. I personally need to read that. Yeah, that's 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 um that's really quite. quite I haven't done that one yeah. either. Very good imagery. Cool. Refresh my memory. Was McDonald um, 
either um, a minister or the son of a minister? I believe he was a minister himself. We have uh, a great collection of his sermons, I believe. He wrote a whole lot. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. He had so much time to write as much as he did and have such a huge family. uh... Bill Bill Bryson actually wrote a really interesting book, a nonfiction called At Home, that talks about the ministerial class in England in the 19th century and just why they had so much free time. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah. It was a cushy job to have. It was a cushy job to have. I, did, I do remember also reading, although this is completely irrelevant, I do remember also discovering some of George MacDonald's um, sort of Scots drama slash romance books, which um, ten, tended to sort of go, go along a Christian theme, but were basically soap operas. <laughs> really cool to read because they had the usual kind of, you know, illegitimate children and, and the rich people and poor people being mis, mis, um, misused and, you know, various triumphal um, endings and, you know, bad people ending terribly as they should. You know, they were actually fantastic to read, especially <laughs> if you knew just enough of, of the Scots. Fortunately, I was reading something that had been slightly anglicized because I'm not a, a full Scots reader. Let me not claim to be such. <laughs> but it was just enough that the, the whole rhythm, the language and everything like that, you just completely sucked into to the time and the location. Fantastic. I just love them. Very cool. Okay. No. McDonald's book, the uh, the well and the end of the world. Uh, no, I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, the, the image of that you, you see in uh, Magician's Nephew with the woods between the worlds. Mm. And uh, ah. I've heard that also in that particular work of McDonald's also influenced Tolkien. Oh, cool. Oh, I've not read it myself, so I have no idea how. <laughs> Yeah, luckily, almost all of McDonald is is on is in public domain now, so he's he's relatively easy to find. Just be careful what you dip into. You know, some of it's going to be um, some of it's going to be more interesting than other bits. <laughs> I, I have to say, I yeah. tried Lilith, and it did not agree with me at all. Um, I I can't necessarily uh, delve into why now because it's been so long since I read it, but I might have written a review of it for my website way back in the day, but. Um, you know, I, re- I remember being like, hey, wait, I loved these other books this guy wrote, and this is really bad. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I'm sure there are people who would, who would find it very interesting. It's really interesting to read MacDonald, not just for the breadth of the imagination, but just as a precursor to Lewis, to, to see where the influences are and how it all connects later on in Lewis's work. Mm-hmm. And and since we're having some technical problems with the call, I won't take this off into a, a tangent about Lord Dunsany, who's my other favorite uh, <laughs> fantasy author, you know, fantasy author from that period. So, but everyone should go look up um, all the people that we've mentioned, and they're absolutely worth reading. The Wade Center especially will help you with Lewis and with MacDonald. It's another one of their authors. Ah, excellent, excellent. So, okay, well. I wanted to thank Beth very much for, for coming and, and uh, giving us uh, some new perspectives on, on how to read Till We Have Faces. Um, let's see, Beth, is there, is there anything that, um, that you can point people to or, or that you'd particularly like to promote, either for the work that you're doing as, a, as an editor or um, yeah, any websites or anything? Uh, there are uh, Lewis societies in uh, England and uh, American chapters as well. Uh, 
that are very scholarly and um he's <laughs> he's almost become a a patron saint uh in the protestant church <laughs> <laughs> I feel like any day now we'll we'll decide. Oh yeah, we can have saints too, and make Lewis the first one. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so there is a lot about him. Excellent. Cool. Okay. Well, with that, I think we'll wrap this up. Um, when we come back in June, I think we'll be talking. Are we doing Gene Wolfe first, Karen? We are. We yes. are definitely. Gene Wolfe. We'll be doing the first book of the. Um, of the oh my goodness book of the new sun shadow shadow of the torture okay shadow of the torture and uh, i suspect that we'll be revisiting some of the themes about myth when we also talk uh, about cordwainer smith i'm going through um his excellent nesva collection right now and picking out what stories we want to talk about so cool excellent so I hope everyone will has enjoyed this uh, little extra mid-season pause podcast, and uh, hope to <laughs> hope that uh, people will tune in again when we start up the second half of season two in late May or early June.